Sam Levy studied film in Paris with French New Wave director Eric Colmer and began his career as an apprentice to legendary cinematographer Harris Savides. Sam first gained recognition as a cinematographer when he photographed Wendy and Lucy for director Kelly Reichert, voted one of the best 25 films of the 21st century by the New York Times. He went on to shoot Francis Ha, Mistress America, and While We're Young for director Noah Baumbach, Changers and Frank Ocean's Blonded for Spike Jones, Sermon on the Mount for Jared Carmichael, Maggie's Plan for Rebecca Miller, and Green Porno for Isabella Rossellini. Sam also photographed Lady Bird for writer-director Greta Gerwig, nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Picture and winner of the Golden Globe for Best Picture. Other new films include May Day, which he also produced, Confess Fletch, and She Came to Me. Sam Levy, welcome to The Creative Process. Thanks, Mia. Thanks for having me. So we want to go into your journey into becoming a cinematographer, but there's this line in Lady Bird, and it's stuck out to me. And you remember, she's sitting down across from the nun, and the nun is observing and says, you clearly love Sacramento. And I feel like this exchange encapsulates something that I feel from your body of work, because Lady Bird says, sure, I guess I, I pay attention. And the nun says, don't you think maybe they're the same thing, love and attention? Yeah, I really love that line in the script. It's an incredible script that Greta Gerwig wrote. It's not obvious, that sentiment that she says. I think that's why she has to point it out to the Ladybird character. But I think if we're lucky in our lives, we can choose the path that we want to go down, whether it's something creative or in the arts or something else. And I think if you're lucky, you can spend your life or your career following something you really love or spending time following the path or you could whether it's a hobby or your career and spending that time paying the attention that the craft or the hobby or the creative pursuit wants and what i felt with your lensing whether it was your work with anoa bamba and greta gerwig mistress america or francis hart that there's this special attention that reveals to us what is special about these characters even with all their flaws it's very loving and yet it's very intimate and close and i don't know how you arrive at that and with your relationship with the production designers and directors how you arrive at that we get to know them so well yeah i think intention has a lot to do with it there's certainly a lot of technical things and like a bag of tricks that as a cinematographer you learn some of these tricks and how to light people or what lenses to use and things like that but at the end of the day those are just tools and I think if the intention is to show some aspect of the character or to make them look great in a certain way or to make them look heroic or to make them to convey that they're downtrodden or down on their luck in a subtle kind of a way. Just, I think it does start with that intention, just like an actor has to define what their intention are within a scene. I think it's the same in cinematography. And one of the things we do is we break down the script and go scene by scene and shot by shot. And I think it's important to have a sense of the emotion within characters or stories and to be as specific as possible what you're trying to convey in a certain scene, whether it's that scene you mentioned in Lady Bird and a sense of her vulnerability. I think one of the things in Lady Bird that's interesting is she's incredibly vulnerable, especially in relationship to her mom. And then she starts to come out of her shell and becomes more and more empowered and less and less vulnerable in a sense. And so how do you convey that on screen? And a lot of it is just wanting it to, that sense to, to be there. And so you just go along and find little subtle ways, like move the camera closer to someone and then you have more of a sense of their vulnerability in that moment. And then the actor does a little bit as well. And how do you do these things to go along with what they're doing and with the colors of clothing and how the wall is painted and things like that? Yes, it's a huge, a lot of plates spinning, a lot of juggling, and at the same time, the ease of transition. And you mentioned Ladybird, but it also shares this with Francis Ha and, and others. And of course, it's no surprise in some ways, they feel like the same character in different stages of their life. These transitions between, you mentioned the mother-daughter relationship, but also with the other characters, the very important female friendships, where it's going quite 
quickly from an affectionate argument to, to affection again, <laughs> and then going back to this kind of stubbornness. And so how do you weave that? I don't really know. Like there's no, every movie is different. Every story is different. We've been talking about Lady Bird and you mentioned Francis Ha. So we I, I worked, made Francis Ha first and there's this interesting relationship between her and her best friend that is almost like a romance, but it's not actually romantic. But the way the story is told, it's like two lovers. And then but they get into arguments and there's a lot of conflict. And then Lady Bird, there's a lot of conflict between the mother and the daughter. And in some sense, I remember thinking, well, I've made things before. And with Greta, where there's conflict and maybe there's some overlap here, but there wasn't. It's just every time you start from scratch and... You might think, well, if we use a certain camera or if we use certain tools, maybe that will help. But that's really the last step. And then I think you have to have a more, like a sort of less practical approach in the initial discussions. You don't have to do anything. I'm just speaking from my own experience. But I find it helpful to speak with the director and all the collaborators on the project and just to to have what I'd call like a more dreamy conversation when you get together in a cafe or in the office and just talk through more emotional aspects of the story and not, okay, th this is like what we're going to do on day three. This is the schedule and we have to go scout a location. Or There's these very kind of earthly concerns that making a film requires, like how many people need to show up on certain days and what the budget is and things like that. And you have to really leave all of that stuff for later. All this stuff is important, just like on any creative process or business where there's a finite amount of resources. But I think what your question addresses, how do you show certain relationships? The fact is you just have to talk about them first and figure out like what, what they are. Like I might read something on the page and think it represents one specific thing. Like, well, they're having an argument here. They're very angry at each other. And then their anger grows and grows and grows until they stop talking to each other and they don't see each other for a long time. It's very finite, just like it's been in my own life when maybe that's happened to me. But in discussing it with collaborators, notably the director, it might have nothing to do with my own experience. So it's really important to understand specifically what the emotional notes are of the story. And then little by little, we just figure out the technique of just like the brush strokes, if it were painting or the notes, if it were music in cinematography, it's a visual medium. So eventually we're moving towards what is in the frame or what isn't in the frame and how all these frames transition to each other. And I just should note, certainly I'm not familiar with every type of camera, but when I heard that Frances Ha was shot on a Canon 5D Mark II. Exactly. Like, it's a consumer camera. It's, that is amazing. I just, it has to be said, if you haven't seen the movie, I saw it three times. Uh, so, and <laughs> I'm you. sure, and, and even at the third time, I have to say, because that's how good the storytelling and the acting and the visual storytelling and all it works together. Still, I wasn't able to watch it just thinking about technique. I was just falling in love with the character. But to me, make it so beautiful and yet on some yeah well that was interesting the way that came about one of the reasons is that the the camera was like three years old when we made Francis Ha two or three years old and I already owned one and I'd been experimenting with it and one of the interesting things about that camera is that it's a very sophisticated still photo camera it takes very very high resolution still photos it was one of the first consumer cameras, or some people would call it a prosumer camera. It's not cheap and it's not super expensive. It's like somewhere in the middle. The Canon company, in a nod to photojournalists, added video to this still photo camera as an afterthought. And so what's interesting about video with that specific camera is that, get like nerdy for one second, it has a very large digital sensor, which means it photographs like a medium format Mamiya camera. It renders these very pleasing images that have a very shallow depth of field, which means that when something's in focus, like a portrait in, in the foreground is very in focus, what's in the background is very soft or out of focus in, in a very distinctive way. But... The video of this camera is very low resolution, which just means simply that it's like a grainy image. It breaks up really easily. And the combination of this big sensor that renders this sort of resolved image, but this kind of grainy video is a really interesting 
combination. So anyways, I'd been experimenting with that camera a lot. And what it offered Francis Ha was the ability to have a very small camera. It's, very, it's a very physically small camera. And Noah at the time asked me, he had actually made this great documentary called De Palma about Brian De Palma that a friend of his and he made. And he was interested to make a feature with it. And I owned this camera and he asked, like, do you think this could work on a narrative feature film? And I was very confident with this camera. And it just, it was a really good tool for the project at the time because it just meant we could keep things very small and we could have a kind of smaller footprint. And we built everything in the Francis Ha project around having a small footprint really working. And I think it ended up showing up on screen. So that's a bit of technical process there. But ultimately, again, it was thinking about like, well, Sophie and Francis, the two best friends in the movie and their relationship devolving, then reemerging towards the end. Like, how do we show that effectively? And in a way, just keeping things small and intimate on the set was a way at that. So this is a bit of the technique informing the emotional process. Oh, yes. And, and I don't want to move yet into a confessed Fletch, but there's other more expensive techniques for once you do something on digital, making it look like film. And, but this seems like it kind of can shortcut that as well and be less expensive and still get that softness which we love yeah in a sense it does it also that movie was black and white so that helped a lot just the way that different digital cameras render color is it's just very specific to each camera and then to one's personal taste how you want colors to be represented on screen meaning we photograph movies and scenes in a certain way and then one of the last steps in making a movie, we, there's different words for it, was to color grade the film or color correct is another way to put it, which just means we go scene by scene, we you know, make whatever's too bright, a little darker, whatever's too dark, a little brighter, and just kind of set all of the colors the way that we would like them to be represented. So in Francis Ha, just the fact that it was black and white, just it removes that consideration, the, the color consideration. We don't have to deal with color balancing. It was just different tones of gray, black, and silver. Yes. Well, I just love the intimacy and Frances flawed character, someone who seems like she's still rehearsing her life and as we all are, but you capture that so beautifully. And it has that quality. And Greta Gerwig has discussed this as well for other films that you've done together to have this quality of memory. And I'm in Paris and you know that you studied in Paris under Eric Romer. And I'm wondering what you've taken away from his style of filmmaking. Um, yeah, that's true. I studied for a year under Eric Romer at Paris Michelet University. And his class was called Cinematography with Eric Romer, but it was not, we didn't shoot anything. We just watched films, mostly his films. And he would turn the sound off and just talk. It was fantastic. And then we would write papers and discuss. And he talked a lot about his cinematographer, Nestor Almendros, who shot My Night at Mods, Pauline at the Beach, Claire's Knee, most of his better known films. And Romer was a very interesting person. He was a very ecologically minded person at a time when it wasn't as mainstream as it is now to be concerned with climate change. And he didn't own a telephone and he just was big on conserving. So he would just talk a lot about the need to rehearse and he would famously only do one take of everything. And that, that's sort of like a more practical or technical thing. But what was interesting was he would talk about the discussions about light with Nestor Almendros, his cinematographer. And he would very often show Gauguin paintings to Nestor and they would discuss them. And Nestor didn't really like that because Gauguin paintings, if you look at them, there's no real discernible light source in those paintings. They're impressionist paintings that aren't, they're not about light. It's just there's color composition and the colors tend to be very sort of uniform. And so Nestor didn't like that. He's like, well, this doesn't, this is interesting in terms of the wardrobe and the color of the room, but it has nothing to do with light. So where do we go from here? So that, that was really interesting since I'd never thought about light sources and paintings. And I think the big thing that I got from studying with Romer was just his movies are extremely dialogue heavy, but they're very cinematic. And 
the way that he would talk about shooting scenes and in a film like My Night at Mods, that's like largely in one apartment dialogue spoken between two people and how to shoot a story that's told through dialogue, but not have it feel like television. And that came in handy later when I did meet Noah and Greta and Noah's a huge Romer fan. So we talked about him a lot. And I think that helped me a lot just to have confidence that if a film has a lot of dialogue, you don't just have to, for it to feel cinematic and interesting, you don't just need like many different angles for the scene to play well. You can kind of show some restraint and even have a scene can unfold in one shot and be dynamic, even if people are talking a lot. Yeah, that slow seduction or just letting us take it in and breathe it in that you do beautifully. Thank you. I'm always thinking about story, but of course it's the visual presentation, but you must ask yourself why you get many different cinematographers, like they focus on costume dramas or all these action films. And you seem, if I can draw a line of similarity for some of the characters that you put on screen, it's these flawed characters, some of them like in Confessed Flesh, kind of adult adolescents or in Lady Bird, adolescent adults. Maybe they're kind of stumbling and they're holding to their dream. There seems to be something quite similar Similar. Do you ask yourself why are these stories brought to you or what are you able to bring to these stories that the directors trust you with them? That's a great question. I do ask myself that sometimes. I think these things, they kind of find me more than I necessarily find them in a way. My theory, I don't know for sure, is probably that for whatever reason, I did get to study with Romer as I described, and it was in a way set me on a path. And then when I met Noah Baumbach, who was really taken with the work of Eric Romer. The fact that I'd studied with him really was of interest to him. And it was something we got to our relationship kind of blossomed as a result of that. And then from shooting Noah's, you could say like a similar sensibility to his was interested to maybe talk to me about shooting their films. So these things have a cascading effect, but I would say just speaking personally, I can relate to feeling flawed in that way, or just feeling like, like an adolescent. As we all make our way through life, I'll just speak for myself. I feel like the same person I was when I was 12. And I think that's kind of what a lot of these characters have in common. And definitely the Fletch character from the new film, which was a lot of fun to work on. It's the Fletch character's very, I wouldn't like liken myself to John Hamm, who's this very handsome, worldly guy who's very well read. That's not what I'm saying. I just mean, excuse that, uh... me, that's not you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just, yeah, I don't know. I, I think in a way, freelance filmmaking, it feels like it unfolds in front of you. Certainly, your greatest power is to say you don't want to work on something if the sensibility isn't there, or if you don't like the script or the filmmakers who are calling. But I don't know. I think I've been very fortunate to get to work on some of these kinds of things. Yeah, well, it has a certain signature. And as you say, it cascades and also your strength in depicting female friendships and female friendships where you say it's almost a love story or they're finding their strength. The male characters come in with Confessed Flesh as a different thing, but where they're finding their strength without men. May Day is a more extreme instance of that, like very extreme. But yeah, so you have these certain signatures that's like, oh, they're looking for that. Let's, it must be the, the Sam Levy touch that they're looking for. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I was very lucky to have, have a wonderful mom who's an attorney and growing up, my mom worked very long hours and my father was a musician who did most of the cooking. And I think just having a strong mother with a career and a very distinctive point of view has something to do with all of this, that like I'm looking for my mom in some of these projects, someone who really shaped my worldview that her relationship with her friends or possibly with her mom. And I think it just feels very familiar and fun. I was lucky to have a great relationship with my mom, who was all of those things. And who also would feel very guilty, like working long hours. And I always loved that. I loved that. It was my dad who would cook and my mom had this interesting career and still does. Yes, it must make you a great collaborator for the women directors that you've worked with. Greta Gerwig, Isabella Rossellini, just something an affinity. I'm so excited of talking to you because I'm also a film student. And so you shared a little bit of how cinematography can add a lot of things to storytelling about the shot you did in Rothenel. 
the film about the comedian, like the opening yes. shot, how he was walking towards the camera and as well as walking towards the stage. And then you've zoomed out and show us the yes. bigger audience and where he is right now. It's just such an amazing camera work. So I'm super curious about the creative process of this shot. Is it more like a spontaneous work or you well designed it? I would say it's primarily designed that the moment is Gerard Carmichael is the comedian and Rathaniel is the name of the comedy special. And he's entering the Blue Note Jazz Club in Greenwich Village, the West Village in New York City. And there's a really great window that looks out onto the street. And so one of the reasons we picked the location, the Blue Note Jazz Club, was because of this window. And really for that moment, so I'm really glad you picked up on that moment. In the shot, the camera's pointing towards the front entrance where there's a window out onto the street and it's snowing out on the street. And you see Gerard walk past the window, then he walks into the club, walks in, and he immediately gets very silhouette And then he hands his jacket to an attendant at the club who happens to be his friend. And they talk for a moment. And then he makes his way to the stage and it gets very shadowy. He totally disappears for a moment there. And then the spotlight comes up and he starts performing. We knew that we wanted to show him entering the club and to make it interesting and not like the kind of thing you see in most comedy specials. There's usually some kind of interlude beforehand. And we did get very lucky a few days before the show. We saw it was going to snow. It happened to be winter. And so we filmed a kind of introductory bit to that moment where he's just walking around Greenwich Village. So we filmed him in a snowstorm. And then later, we just wanted to end the sequence where he's walking through the snow with him entering the club. And so it was designed in the sense that we picked that location because of this window. And then I just wanted him to disappear basically and really go into darkness where you could just see him and then i knew well the moment he gets on stage there has to be a spotlight you have to see him when he's performing and the choice of the kind of steel blue i would call it this, this kind of like blue light that you see in the club was my suggestion to the director of Burnham, and he, he and gerard both really like that so we just kind of bathed everything in this kind of blue and that was just like an instinct. We looked at a lot of photos of coffee shop readings and folk music performances from the 60s, like Bob Dylan and Jack Kerouac. And all of them were very sparsely lit. And so that was a bit of the motivation there. And all of those photos are black and white, almost exclusively. And so it seemed like I noticed we did some testing with Gerard that he looked really great with this kind of steel blue light. And it felt similar. It felt like the closest thing to black and white, putting a wash of blue kind of evened all of the color range out, almost like black and white. Yeah, it's amazing, especially when you're describing the scenes like very visualized and how you play around with the settings. And also we were talking mostly about films, but I also know that you have also experienced a lot of other genres like video making, commercials and music videos. So I wonder how you balance or approach different styles of cinematography. Well, I got my start in commercials. My first ever job, I worked for a commercial production company. So when I started to learn the craft of professional filmmaking, it was on TV commercials, which are much shorter. You work for maybe a couple of days or maybe a week or two, as opposed to three or four months on a movie project or more. So the balance, if you're lucky and you can get to do both, it's a nice balance if you've done four or five months on a longer project to just do something that's much shorter. And some people describe it as like doing a sprint as opposed to a long distance run, doing a commercial or music video. And it's very fast and it's much more freeform. Meaning when we do a movie, there's so much planning that goes into it. And by the time you get to shooting, it's so mapped out and very highly regimented. So getting to do a music video, like I did a Vampire Weekend video that Jonah Hill directed, which was a lot of fun to do. And we definitely planned it out and, you know, we scouted the locations and do a lot of the same kinds of preparation you do on a longer project. But it was much more freeform, almost like what I imagine playing jazz must be like a little bit more improvisatory. So in that sense, creatively speaking, it's a really nice balance to be able to do both because it both can recharge you in a sense. If you do just one of those things for too long, you can burn out physically and emotionally. 
Yeah, I've seen that vampire music video also. It's like very experimental and you kind of use a very bold way of using the lights because a lot of overexposure shots. So I also wonder, since you've done different genres and styles of cinematography, I wonder what do you think is the characteristic that specifically belongs to you? Like maybe we'll feel like we can sense or feel it and no matter what genre it is, we can just find it in different pieces like a specific style belongs to you. Yeah, I honestly think that's probably for someone else to say, because we can really be blind to our own characteristics in the same way that I think I probably like a lot of people have like a dysmorphia of looking at my own the things that I've gotten to work on. I could say, in a sense, a certain amount of shadowy light and silhouette. And some people told me they find that my work has a certain amount of subtlety to it, which is a very broad term. But I think when a new project comes up, the thing I'm always looking to try something new as much as possible. So if it's a genre, like the movie Mayday, which I got to work on, is like an action fantasy film. And I'd never done anything like that. And so it was great. So really challenging and very inspiring and, and satisfying to get to work on something like that. We used, used a lot of tools I'd never used before, like anamorphic lenses on a feature film. I'd never done that before. But it's hard to answer that question for myself, I could tell you about someone else. I could tell you that the cinematographer who probably inspired me to become a cinematographer is Gordon Willis, who shot all the Godfather movies and, you know, Annie Hall and Manhattan and all the President's Men and Clute. And the reason I was inspired by those films is because they're significantly darker. The lighting is a lot darker and there's just fewer shots. The blocking is impeccable and it just, they're very distinctive and I never seen anything like that and I've watched them many many times so I can like tell you what those patterns are but it's it's hard to do that for yourself some people are really good at at that kind of self-reflection and I don't think I am I'm Rupert Zhang a student at NYU studying film and journalism and a collaborator with the creative process I found the conversation with Sam Levy very educative and informative which gives me a first-hand experience to learn from a professional working in the field enriches my knowledge about filmmaking. In the first half of this episode, Sam talks about his sophisticated experience with cameras as a professional cinematographer and how different types of camera and camera work add to the character's relationship and color tones. In films like Francis Hall and Ladybird, his personal stories of studying with the French New Wave director Eric Romare, as well as growing up in a family that challenges the conventional gender roles are especially interesting to listen to, which makes me further understand Sam as a complete person. I really like the part he says the stories find him more than he finds them. A storytelling intuition just unfolds in front of Sam and his cameras. Later in the second half of this episode, you will hear Sam discusses his more recent works and his creative working process of how locations inspired him in visual storytelling. You also get to know a special closeness and intimacy between the cinematographer and the subjects that the camera has brought to Sam. Yes, that shows your adaptability for each project and really listening to the different collaborators and it and not to be fixed. Although I see it not as a strong signature, it seems like more in the stories that I've seen a kind of core, but you really have a lot of dexterity and Mayday is beautiful. They're all beautiful. And then Confess Fletch with the palette. I don't know if there's a touch of that Gordon Willis. I know you're not modeling after the elements of Hitchcock. You know, it tells us about the challenges of filming in Rome and the different challenges you had on that film. Yeah, we did get to shoot in Rome, which was fantastic. The opening sequences of, of Confess Fletch are set in Rome. And I would say the biggest challenge about shooting in Rome was that we didn't get to shoot there more. I would have loved it. I mean, it's a, not a very long sequence in the film. We shot there for about a week. It was so great. I just wanted to do more or shoot a whole movie there. But in a way, the challenges are very similar to any other film in the sense that there's always the challenge of making things on time. You always have a very specific schedule when shooting a movie and it's just really important to get all of the material shot that you need to do in the amount of time you have. So I would say it's probably one of the biggest thrills of getting to shoot a movie is if things are clicking and you feel like we're getting great stuff 
creatively, this is really working and we're doing well on our day. Like we won't go into overtime. This is a big concern, just like a lot of businesses. Firms are budgeted very precisely. There might be a little room for some overtime, but generally you really want to make the day as we say, but it went really well on Confess Fletch. There's always the fear of something going off the rails, like an act of God or weather or just anything, the human element, which is what's beautiful about getting to make films. And it's where the preparation comes into it deeply. And it was something that back when I studied with Romer, I could see this is a person who prepares exquisitely and doesn't want to waste a lot of time when shooting. And he's not extravagant and he doesn't need a lot of luxuries when working. It's really not about that. And some people, you hear a lot of stories about personalities and what they require who, you know, work on movies or show business. When it comes down to it, the people who really work consistently and make great work generally eschew all of that kind of thing. And Confess Fletch was a really pleasant experience. It, it all went very smoothly and everyone was in concert with each other. And John Hamm is great in that. It could turn into a, a television series as well. I know you have all those source novels and there was that original film in the 80s, a different thing entirely, but it's just so fun to watch him again, another adult adolescent, but just charming his yeah. way through life. Yeah, he's a great filmmaker. He's very smart and savvy about the process. We shoot everything out of order. On your first day, you may shoot the 23rd scene or one of the last scenes of the movie just because of production concerns like locations. And some people are really great at holding the entire story in their head. It's a really important skill to learn holding the story in your head over several months when you're working so out of sequence, unlike say a play where you're watching it unfold. A film, you really have to plan very intensely with things kind of hanging all over the place. And John Hamm is really great at that. And he's a great leader. And he's also one of the producers. And I learned a lot from him. Exactly. And so you also had your first producing experience in Mayday. And what was that? That's like? right. It was great. What my role as a producer on Mayday was I helped develop Mayday. The material was written and directed by Karen Chinore, who's my life partner. We lived together. And I was very taken with the idea and got around as she developed it into a script and then in its various drafts until it was locked. And my biggest contribution as a producer was before we were on the ground in Croatia making the film and prepping. Once we got over there, we had two producers who sort of took over. It's too much to handle, like really actively producing while shooting because it was just a complicated movie to shoot. But I was a before shooting, developing the project. And then once we wrapped and getting it to Sundance and helping it to find distribution, I was, again, part of the group. And it was thrilling and really difficult. You know, producing is so hard and very underappreciated. People don't really understand what producing is because it's mysterious and it, it can mean many different things. And luckily we had great help. Karen and I produced together. We didn't have to do it all ourselves. Exactly. It's one of those arts and people often think it's just about the business side of it. It's a misconception. I call them the invisible arts behind yeah. the scenes, nurturing, making sure it can happen, producing. Yeah. I think um, the film, The Red Shoes, the Pellon Pressburger movie, it's a great movie about producing. The Boris Lermontov character in that movie who runs a ballet company is an empresario who's totally overbearing and kind of psychotic. But also you see what being a creative producer is and the people who really thrive in that role, who are comfortable not being front and center as the lead creator, like a director, but are very comfortable in their skin working with people in a creative role and then helping to facilitate the process and the financial component as it interacts with that, I have great admiration for people who thrive in that role and are comfortable in that role. So many elements and there can be an element of casting and so many things. So it's, I guess it's as well, it remains mysterious so that we can just enjoy the magic of the movies. You're filming and you're dealing with rhythms and you're also collaborating sometimes not directly, but with an eye to your other collaborators down the line, be they the composer or the editor. How do you manage that kind of collaboration, which may be at a distance? I'm thinking of She Came to Me, which of course has a beautiful soundtrack. And how do you preempt those kind of collaborations? 
Well, every, every film is different, but I would say the most notable relationship of the ones you described that I have is with the editor. And a big part of my job is helping to anticipate the editorial process. So that means to me, the biggest way I can participate in that is to help to look at how everything transitions from one scene to the next or from one shot to the next. But a big transitional consideration is between different scenes. So one scene ends and the next begins and how do they find each other? And regard to music, my father was a violinist in the Boston Symphony. And I I grew up around classical music and spent a lot of time backstage and even had, I was in a certain proximity to my father's orchestra playing on Steven Spielberg's soundtracks and Clint Eastwood's soundtracks. And I grew up playing the cello and just having music in my background and being around a lot of musicians, I can have a lot of sympathy for what a professional musician is and what that way of life is. And the, the thing I learned being around very intense classical musicians, I was around Yo-Yo Ma and Leonard Bernstein and Itzhak Perlman when I was a little kid. And I could just see the way these people thrive and create otherworldly works of art is by an intense amount of passion and dedication and hard work. And I can always recognize that when people have a hint of that same sensibility and greatness, it's like, I can spot it right away or or I can hear it. And I think just if I'm lucky enough to get to talk to a composer on a movie, which I usually don't because it happens much later, but in the case of something like Mayday, which I produced, I got to talk a lot to Colin Stetson and Carolyn Shaw. I think musicians always appreciate if someone like really understands what their life is like, how difficult it is and how it's not just these beautiful sounds that you hear. It's just a really difficult way of life and they get hungry and tired, but still persist in creating these great sounds. So I think to create great cinematography is to be able to hold in your mind and your sensibility that these images need to flow together with the editorial process and the sound design and the music and how can these fit together and help become this transcendent thing. Oh, that's beautifully said. And I would just love to learn more about what you observe from composers or musicians when you're young. Florian Hofmeister said to me that the camera is like a musical instrument, although it doesn't make sound, but something about the rhythms. That's true. I don't always operate the camera myself, but on Lady Bird and Francis Ha, I did. And it does feel that way. Like it's very easy to flub a camera move and it's a very thoughtful and engaging process. You're looking through the eyepiece and everything sort of hangs together. And I've always thought that filmmaking rhymes with classical music. The process of making classical music that I observed as a child when I discovered filmmaking, I thought these things, they're very similar. They rhyme with each other. How about this doesn't sound pretentious, but what operating a camera does resemble the physicality of conducting an orchestra. My favorite conductor that I ever got to see was Seiji Ozawa, who was the musical director of the Boston Symphony and the Tokyo Symphony. But he was, my father's orchestra was the Boston Symphony and he was musical director for 35 years or something like that. And this was like, he was like a dancer, a really beautiful, elegant movements. And I watched him rehearse and perform for so many hours when I was a child. And I think subconsciously as a camera operator that it informed my sensibility. And maybe if I'm able to pull off like an elegant, smooth camera move, like on the Mistress America movie, Noah's movie, we did a lot of big flourishy movements all in one shot. And I think Seiji was a huge influence on me in terms of movement. And even if Confess Fletch, I didn't operate the camera, but I had an amazing operator named Julian Dela Cruz. And just being able to communicate like what the movement should be and just speak that language, I think getting to watch Seiji as a kid really helped that for me. Well, I, I'd love to know more about it. This is situation of intimacy and closeness that you have when you're also behind the camera and how, well, you're really kind of a, a character as well because they're performing for you. So how do you establish that with the different actors, but on those films, of course, with Greta Yeah, I think 
with the best intentions possible. If I'm working with an actor I haven't worked with before, I just try without being patronizing to let them know, like, I'm here to have your back. And if, if you don't feel safe or if you feel uncomfortable, just stop everything, pull me aside or come find me and just tell me. And then we'll reverse the situation as quickly as we can. And if I'm operating, there's just this great unspoken language between the camera operator and, and the performer. And uh, different performers have different preferences. Like, you know, Saoirse Ronan would love to talk to everybody and he'd really like love to make people laugh and feel comfortable and just like that kind of energy was really great for her. And then right up until Greta would call action, she kind of had us in stitches in a great way, in a way that wasn't at odds with what we were doing. Laurie Metcalf, who played her mom, was not like that at all. It was very, very friendly and like wonderful to everybody, but just, she was just very quiet, very focused. And then she would come alive later when it was time to act. And so a big part of my job is to pick up on those rhythms and energy. It's almost like you're I'm not hosting the party, but I'm, a, I'm an important part of planning of this party or dinner get together. And my job is to make sure everyone feels comfortable and is in the best possible position to give a great performance or in the case of the camera crew that they just have everything they need to do great work. There's so many great scenes in that film, but we mentioned Laurie Metcalf and when she's holding it in for so long, she's the adult, the tough love, but with this affection coming through this warmth that she doesn't always love. And then I don't know if it's your favorite scene, but there's so many wonderful ones when she's just crying at the airport. Oh yeah, that's such a great scene. I mean, a fun anecdote about that scene, that scene was shot in Sacramento. It's a scene where she drops her daughter off at the airport, but she's really angry at her because they had a big argument. And so she doesn't go in to see her off to the gate. So she loops. She also doesn't want to park, spend money to park the car. So she loops around, immediately regrets it, and then starts crying and then tries to run after her daughter, but she's missed her. And because we were in Sacramento, which is a relatively small city, and they're so friendly there, they just shut all the airport <laughs> traffic down for us so we could film that scene, which that's kind of thing never happens in pretty much any other city. And they were just so friendly and excited for us <laughs> to be there. It just really helped. Everyone was super relaxed and it was, it was fun. And they were happy we were there. And what was important about that, you know, Laurie Metcalf is the kind of performer you could pretty much throw her into any situation and she'll be totally brilliant. But if you give her just like a little bit more room, like we had that day, so it was very comfortable. She really gave it to us. And, and my job is to make sure a big part of the preparation for me is make sure there's all the room in the world for that to happen. And then all the <laughs> tools that we bring, like the camera, the lenses, they just, they really have to work when we need them to work. That's probably the most important part of my job is get everything to look amazing. Just make sure all the stuff I've brought to show up that day works and that we grab that moment. Because in a lot of ways, when you have someone like Laurie Metcalf giving a performance like that, it's like, just stay out of the way. Don't get in the way of that and it'll be great. Yeah, you're a magician and you just have to make sure that we don't see the wires. Yeah. <laughs> it all just happens so, so naturally. So the emotion comes through. About your transnational filming experience, because you mentioned you studied in France and then you shot films in Italy, Rome, and then Croatia. So I wonder how like locations kind of can inspire you more and add some creativities in your uh, cinematography work. A big part of the process is scouting for locations. So it's not always the case, but it's very preferable to participate in picking locations because depending on the location, it gives you so much or it subtracts so much. And a film like Mayday in Croatia, I got to be part of the group of people deciding like, no, it should be in Croatia as opposed to a different country. We looked at different countries for that film, but these coastlines with these beautiful, very bent looking trees, which the trees in Istria where we shot because of the wind, there's like very bent looking. And we just loved the effect of these bent trees and sort of the feeling that it evokes, as well as just the quality of light in November in Croatia is just very, has less color than in the summer and that combined with the trees and so on. I live in New York City, so I'm preparing a film right now that's going to be shot here. It's nice to be at home and it's inspiring in a different way. My friends who I've known for many years live here. We work together on the camera crew. 
So that's sort of a different kind of a thing. I'm more in my everyday rhythm, living at home. I can cook meals mostly on the weekend, that kind of thing. That has, that, uh, it has a, a way of showing up on screen. All of these little, our daily routines affect the images we create. When we were in Italy for Confess Fletch, we had an amazing camera crew. And in a lot of ways, my job is I'm a guest in there country. And even though we were shooting the opening of the movie and it came at the end of our schedule, a lot of my job was to translate to them. Like, this is how the sequence needs to fit in with everything else. And I don't speak Italian. So, but what's great about international aspect of filmmaking is that the process really is very similar, no matter where you go. There's different customs, which is always really fun to observe, like in the European system, as they call it, a gaffer, the head lighting person is in charge of setting big diffusion frames for light. And in the United States, the grips shape the light, as we call it. For example, there's a lot of little subtleties like that, or just the names that we call certain gear. But when it comes down to it, it's just very similar. And I remember I shot a commercial in Mexico many years ago, and I don't speak Spanish and my crew definitely spoke more English than I speak Spanish. I speak French, so I could speak sort of fake Spanish. And then I picked up a few words. And the humbling thing about that process was just being able to say up, down, left, right, brighter and darker was like really all I needed to know. And then I, by the end, we could actually communicate. And it was, that's the most wonderful thing. But my role is really, I'm a guest when I go to someone else's country. And I always want to learn their customs of filmmaking, because if I can fit into their customs within the context of what it is we're trying to do creatively on a film, it's first of all, more fun. And I learn. Most of the films that I really admire are not from the United States. The first films that really made me see film as something other than entertainment were Swedish movies, Japanese movies. And I got to shoot a little bit in Sweden. I still haven't gotten to shoot in Japan. But when I got to shoot a little bit in Sweden for Spike Jones, I just asked him a million questions about Ingmar Bergman and Sven Nyqvist. I've heard those questions a lot, but people always are excited to hear that you're enthusiastic about their films, about their cinema. I've shot in Argentina and I'm a big fan of Lucrecia Martel and their love, people love that I know I'd heard of films from their country and was excited. And it's one of the exciting things about getting to do this. And in many ways, it's an international language and it feels like a very positive thing in the world when we can work together like that. Yes, it's amazing when you can come across when you don't have the language, but you do speak this common language. I'm going to insert a funny little story about being in another language. You spoke about Spain, and I remember they're known for the pickpockets in Barcelona. And so I went out to swim, but I needed to take my wallet. And I thought, oh, I can't leave my wallet if I'm going to go to swim in the ocean. So I don't know why anyone would do this, but I stopped at a restaurant and I gave it to a waiter who I got. His name was Juan. And then I swam and I came back to get my wallet because I had to go to Picasso Museum. And I asked because my Spanish is not good, but yeah, like you speaking French. And they couldn't understand. They kept on thinking it was, I was asking for a table for one. And I was saying, <laughs> <laughs> eventually after five minutes of turning Funny. red in the face, they realized I was asking for one. And, you know, it turned out I wasn't uh, some, <laughs> the waiter didn't steal my wallet. <laughs> anyway, it's just. So you got the wallet back. I did. That is a completely crazy long story. But how you can cross language barriers, come together and have this vision, all these hands working together is really that magic trick. You spoke about filming in New York and I love While We're Young. And how did that come together? While We're Young is a Noah Baumbach movie with Ben Stiller and Naomi Watts and Adam Driver, Amanda Seyfried. But it was the third film that I shot for Noah after Francis Ha and Mistress America. And we basically shot them almost in a row. And it was a movie Noah was going to make many years earlier with another cinematographer, Harris Savitas, who was a big mentor of mine and who introduced me to Noah. And then it didn't happen. It kind of went away. And then it came back and it was our third film in a row in New York City. And it was a much bigger movie than Francis or Mistress America. What was really fun about it was in my discussions with Noah, we decided like, well, the scope is bigger, it's a bigger budget, but let's try and make it as similarly as we can to these other more intimate films. We don't have to have 
big toys, a lot of cranes. We don't need a big footprint necessarily. So it was really nice just to bring the same sensibility to something of a bigger scope and to realize, oh, that's always an option. You don't, just because something has more resources attached to it, doesn't mean you have to necessarily alter your creative approach. You, you don't have to order more lights. You don't have to have a, a bigger crew. You don't have to behave any differently. You can still be yourself and just see what the needs of the story are and go from there. Yes. And Harris, as you said, was a mentor who's passed now, but what did you learn from him? Uh, my, my favorite thing that Harris said to me was, there's nothing elegant about making a movie. It's, he said a lot of great things that I love, like a movie is, it's a moving train and it's just constantly moving. You can't stop the train. It, it's going to keep going until the schedule is over. He really stressed the need for something great to be done very simply. He was really a master at that. In my career as a camera assistant working for other cinematographers, I worked for a lot of great, great cinematographers. But what, what made him stand out was he had a really incredible technical prowess. He was very well researched and he really understood the foundational elements of cinematography, which in its way, cinematography is this infinite craft. There's many different directions you can go in. You can spend, it's the kind of thing to me, you can spend a whole lifetime learning about cinematography. There's always infinite things to learn, but he was very good at sort of putting all of his significant knowledge aside and keeping things very stripped down and pared down. And at the same time, he knew every single trick there is about how to light someone or what lenses to use for a certain effect or the chemical process of film and how to get the most out of a film negative. I mean, it was just a master, but it was largely his personality at the end of the day that was just very, he was very unique. And I think ultimately that is why he was able to create such wonderful images was the kind of person that he was coupled with all of these other techniques that he acquired. Well, I think he has passed it to you and you've added to that with your own voice. So thank you, Sam Levy, for your lensing that going back to the beginning of the conversation that teaches us to pay attention and to love these complex characters and for inviting us into your imaginative world, your compassionate camera work, which tells us important stories about resilience and friendship and maintaining a sense of innocence, joy and beauty through maturity. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you, Mia. That's a very lovely description you just gave. And thanks forever. Great to talk to you guys. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Rivajal with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews produced on this episode was Your Name. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Thank you.